Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the life and philosophy of Baruch Spinoza, sometimes known as Benedict Spinoza, the 17th century rationalist philosopher. With me is Dr. Neil Grossman, Emeritus Associate Professor of Philosophy from the University of Illinois, Chicago campus. Dr. Grossman is the author of The Spirit of Spinoza, Healing the Mind. He is also author of Conversations with Socrates and Plato, how a post-materialist social order can solve the problems of modern living and help ensure our survival. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you once again as well, and thank you for making the journey to Albuquerque. Oh, you're so welcome. Most people have heard of Spinoza. I think most people know he's right up there in the pantheon of really great philosophers. But I'm under the impression that most people don't understand Spinoza very well. I think that's right. Um, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's difficult to give a concise uh, overview of of his philosophy in a way that's understandable uh, to many people. Um, one, um, I'll mention this, the major difference between Spinoza and other philosophers of that time, and including theologians, is that his concept of the relationship between God and the world is very, very different from that of the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview, that God is wholly other and he created the world as separate from himself. In Spinoza's system of thought, it's more Eastern in that the created world is internal to the being of God. So the relationship between you and I and God is like the relationship between individual cells in our body and the body as a whole, Right? The body creates every cell within it, right? And so it's not like me and this object out there, we're separate, right? So every human being or every mind is internal mm -hmm. to the mind of God. And that's the major difference. And that's, that's the most difficult thing for Westerners to get about him. But it's also, I have to tell, tell this story. I first heard of Spinoza from Einstein. And I began as a straddling physics and philosophy. I chose philosophy, but stayed up with physics and the quantum theory. And I read what the great physicists thought about what it all means. And the top of that list is Einstein. And uh, I resolved if Spinoza is good enough for Einstein, he's going to be good enough for me. Einstein was asked once, do yeah. you believe in God? And, I, and his answer was... The God of Spinoza, yeah. I thank, believe thank in the God of Spinoza. And when I read that, I think I was undergra an undergraduate, I read, oh, i got to find out who the Spinoza guy is. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't until much later, after I'd gotten tenure on more narrow things like the philosophy of 
physics, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that I um, use the freedom that comes with tenure to go outside my, you know, the, the, the narrow the specialty, the specialty yeah. and investigate uh, this. And so mm-hmm. I basically learned him on, on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to say, uh, especially for our audience, I do not regard myself as a scholar of Spinoza. To be a scholar of anybody, you have to be able to read the language in which he wrote <laughs> and know something of the life and times and the historical mm-hmm. context that produced that thinking. My um, attitude was not that of a scholar, but that of a seeker, a seeker of spiritual truth. I found in Einstein something very worth reading for those interested in spirituality, and he gave me Spinoza as a reference. Uh-huh. So I wanted to know about yeah. this guy who, whose concept of God um, was good enough for Einstein. <laughs> well, it, I think an important historical fact about Spinoza is is that he uh, grew up in Amsterdam. He was a member of the Jewish community of Amsterdam. People saw him as something of a genius. It was expected he might become a great rabbi. He was expected to be the next uh, Moses Maimonides who would interact with the great Christian theologians, Mm -hmm. um, bringing more harmony to Jewish-Christian relations. Mm -hmm. Uh, It should also be mentioned, his parents or grandparents, I think, were refugees from the Inquisition in Portugal. Mm. Um, And Amsterdam was a haven where they were allowed so I imagine the Jewish community was very um, appreciative of that, but also eager not to get uh, their host uh, angry at them. Uh-huh. And Spinoza's concept of God was just as offensive to Christians as it was to Jews. Well, now let's <laughs> get into that because he was excommunicated yeah. in uh, Amsterdam by the Jewish community in Amsterdam. I find this quite unusual because uh, there's normally in in Judaism excommunication doesn't exist. Right, right. I'd be hard pressed to think of anyone else who. I think you did was mention formally, there was one other one case before maybe. that. Yeah, but uh, so he was a rationalist. He uh, endeavored to come up with an image of God that would satisfy rational criteria. And and by rational criteria, what do we mean? Um, One slight correction. Not an image of God, because God cannot be imaged or imagined, but a concept of God formed, articulated through reason. Okay. now, what was your question? <laughs> what, what, when we call Spinoza a rationalist, yeah, and I, yeah. I gather it's it's generally agreed he was a rationalist. It's the school of philosophy he I, belonged to. I agree with that, too. How do we define rationalism? Oh, that's such a hard uh, question. You know, we can come up with these definitions. What, what, what is rationalism? What is empiricism? What is this? Um, well, rationalism is often contrasted well, right, with, with empiricism. With empiricism. And um, so we would intuitively say, okay, Spinoza and Plato are rationalists. William James is an uh, empiricist, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yet Spinoza was on top of the science of the day and c- 
communicated with uh, Huygens and, and others and was very interested to know the results of experiments mm. that were being done with vacuums and Boyle's Law and, and, and stuff like yeah. that. So he was very much interested in the in, in, empiric, empirical the discoveries that were being made. Was, it was a, a, a century of important, uh, 17th, 1600, 17th yeah. century, an important era for scientific discovery. Right. I believe the Royal Society in England was uh, founded then. In the late, uh, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Suppose his dates where he was doing his writing would be the 1660s and 1670s. Something like that. I'm not sure I would try to define these terms anymore, <laughs> like okay. rationalism and empiricism, but I would construe it that the rationalist kind of believes that conceptually you can figure it all, all out, mm-hmm. that the mind can figure it all out, mm-hmm. um, and deduce things from self-evident first principles. Mm-hmm. So Spinoza's first self-evident first principle whether this is self-evident or not, you know, <laughs> is up to the uh, hearer, is there must be something that exists that's independent of anything else. Mm-hmm. First cause. A first cause. That, which is what Aristotle called it. As a, right. Yeah. Spinoza gives it three names. Mm-hmm. Substance, nature, and God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think substance is the one that I like best because it doesn't have the kind of the theistic connotations mm. of God. Mm-hmm. But of course, Spinoza's God is not a theistic, uh, uh, traditional theistic one. But now if you look around, what is it that satisfies this concept of existing independently of anything else? Mm. So you look around, well, it's not my body. That I know my, my parents were necessary for that. Um, it's not these flowers. It's not Right, not even the atoms. These are created in stars, mm-hmm. right? So it turns out that no finite thing that you see around uh, is a candidate for independent being. Yeah. But what is a candidate is reality conceived of as a whole. So if you form a concept, now you can't imagine it, but you can form the concept of everything there is. Okay. okay. And we don't know you know, 99% of of the everything that, but we can form that concept. In the same way that mathematicians form a concept of an infinite set, it doesn't mean that they can picture all the infinite members, but they can understand it perfectly well. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that is, is included in the being of substance. So, that's what makes, I think, his arguments go through, his his, his proof that such a thing must exist. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, in philosophy, it's called the ontological argument. It does not work for the traditional Judeo-Christian uh, Islamic conception of God as wholly separate from creation. But I think it might work mm-hmm. um, for the concept of God that's inclusive of everything that, that there is. Well, from the conventional Judeo-Christian religion, everything that is would have been dependent upon God the Creator. Right. But there are two ways that something, to the human imagination, there are two ways that something can be, uh, one thing can be dependent on another. Um, if um, you planted and watered and, and, and then picked these roses, then these roses are dependent on you for their existence. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's a different kind of dependency than, say, um, uh, your finger is dependent on you for its existence, or certain cells in your body are dependent mm-hmm. on you. Yes. Right? That's a much more intimate relationship. Right. 
And that's how we're related to the divine being. Mm-hmm. Now, you can see right away that this gets into theological uh, difficulties, the problem of evil, for example. God must be completely pure, right, free from evil, but we humans are not. So how can we who are evil be part of the divine being which isn't? Well, and how does Spinoza address that? It's to deny that evil exists. When we use words like good and evil, or good and bad, uh, what do we mean? Mm. So he gives them precise definitions mm-hmm. yeah, in, in his system. I think I give this little analogy in the book. So you imagine a lion uh, chasing his dinner <laughs> on the plains of the Serengeti. Is that good or bad? Well, when he gets the zebra, it's good for the lion and bad for the zebra. Right. Right? Um, but intrinsically, is it good or bad? No, it just is. It's, it's, it's part of, of, of what is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, traditionally, humans define good or bad in terms of what's good or bad for them. Uh, for this form of this particular form of consciousness. And then it projects it outwards onto mm-hmm. the divine being itself. Yeah. or onto, So it's really just a projection. The theological mm-hmm. use of terms like good and bad. Um, so I think that that would be the solution to deny okay. the intrinsic reality of evil, which in Western theology, Eastern too, is personified as Satan or the devil. That is a being that embodies all um, um, all evil. Well, that's for so Spinoza's. In, in other words, Spinoza's a rationalist. He's also a devout person who believes in God, and he wants to justify God using rational criteria. Uh, one of those criteria is that God has to be independent, self-sustaining. And so he's asking himself, what could that be? And he comes up with everything, the, the wholeness, the universe is self-sustaining. Therefore, the universe is God. You could say that the body is just the sum total of all the cells within it. But that invites a sort of tinker toy picture where you have these cells lying around mm-hmm. and you gather them up, you put them together with scotch tape and Elmer's glue, and then you have the body. Mm-hmm. That's a false picture. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you say that the universe is God, it invites that kind of a piecemeal picture. Mm-hmm. God is first and indivisible and one. Mm-hmm. And the created universe is, exists within the being of God. If you say the universe is God, yeah. by universe, you cannot mean what um, uh, science construes as the universe, you, mean, you know, dead galaxies, matter and galaxies uh-huh. uh, out there. Um, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that God is the ground of being. Yes. In Spinoza's philosophy. And there's no other being besides mm-hmm. the divine being. And mm-hmm. we are all, just like everything in your body has been created by your body, and collectively constitutes your body, mm-hmm. but your body has holistic properties over and above the sum of its parts. And one of the things Spinoza says, he, he just says it uh, as if well, everybody knows, the whole is always greater than the sum of its yeah. parts. So if you were thinking of the universe as a bunch of parts, right, it will have holistic properties that are independent of the parts and that you cannot deduce or, 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 or get by just looking at the mm-hmm. parts. And in other words, all the parts were created from the whole rather than the whole being created exactly. from the parts. It's a top-down picture. Yeah. Right? 
And I think that's one of the things Einstein liked about it. Now, the interesting thing, though, as a rationalist, many rationalists today are atheists, I I presume. They don't buy the ontological argument that Spinoza raised. They think in piecemeal terms. They don't look, they don't consider, well, what is this whole? Mm -hmm. What is this universe we're living in? Is it a one or is it a many? It's got to be a one because there are no boundaries. Mm -hmm. There's no place, say, where the sun sun's border ends, right? And the photons that arrive on the Earth's planet, yeah. right? Again, it's actually the sun shining mm-hmm. on the Earth very well, directly. It sounds very much like the Buddhist uh, view of things. Although Buddhists are considered uh, atheists. If you take that word, atheism, mm-hmm. and look at it slowly, you'll see it is a theism, meaning negating theism, the view that by theism we mean that there is a God totally separate from the world, mm. right, who's perfect unto himself, and then he creates the world which is wholly other than him. So when people accuse Spinoza of atheism, which I gather some do. Oh, many. They're, yeah. They're, they're correct. Especially back in his time. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, when in the, uh, it was around 1900 when, when Westerners, uh, when Buddhism came to the United States, basically, Western theologians looked at it as an atheistic uh, religion. Yeah. Uh, because it did not have a concept of a pers- personal deity that you could worship as something other than yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, it embodied this uh, holistic view mm-hmm. of God, that everything that happens, happens internal to the being, to the divine being. So Spinoza draws a lot of implications from this insight. And, and this is where we get into your idea, uh, your subtitle of your book, uh, The Spirit of Spinoza, Healing the Mind. That you, you see Spinoza really as uh, maybe the world's first great psychotherapist. Probably would want to give that title to Plato. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, though. <laughs> <laughs> but in Spinoza's writings, this is what, what people don't know, because scholars spend almost all their time on part one, he, his his ethics is mm-hmm. in five parts, and because and this is what we were talking about just now: substance, we're, part, whole relationship. It's so fascinating those ideas that I can really understand why you wouldn't get past that. Yeah. But <clears throat> most of the ethics is on we would consider therapy. Mm-hmm. It's on the human emotions of the human bondage to the emotions. That's chapter four called on the strength of the emotions. How our Emotions hold us back or dispositions to behavior that are cultured into us from birth hold us back and create deep unhappiness yeah. in us. Um, and what is, what can the mind do? So he has this view that, that this is the rationalist view that there's a part of our mind, the, the intellect. Back then the intellect had a slightly different meaning mm. than it does now. And I once looked at Webster's uh, The Big Thing. Yeah. Our department had a thing. I, was looking, I even brought it to class once. So when you look up intellect, it says translation of intellectus. And it goes down with a number of meanings. But one of the meanings, labeled archaic, is the intellect is the part of our mind that knows God. And that's what Spinoza meant when he used the phrase, the intellectual love of God. It's with that part of the mind 
with which we know God, which is a different part of the mind by which we have emotions, which we have perceptions, which we have memories. Um, I think he might have felt with Plato that that part of the mind we, we experience um, in pure mathematics when we have no emotional attitude towards, you know, wanting a theorem or proof to come out one way or the other. So it's just pure reason without any, or pure intellect, without any emotions, uh, wanting it to come out one way or, or the other. So you, you're <laughs> comparing Spinoza and Plato. I think they are the two great mystics of uh-huh. Western philosophy. Uh-huh. There are more, but they're not just as famous. I mm-hmm. think the whole Neoplatinus, for example, uh-huh. and others. But yeah. And so you see, yeah, they're both uh, mystics. They both have an interest in the cultivation of the human being. Yes. And uh, it's interesting because you told me earlier uh, Spinoza's chapter of human bondage was the basis for the title of the uh, great novel by Somerset Maugham of human bondage. Yeah, that is. He drew upon Spinoza. That's that's right, and he points out. As every therapist knows, that people are in bondage to deep-rooted patterns of behavior and feeling mm-hmm. in, inside. Yeah. And to what extent can we become uh, free from that? And that was a question Spinoza, Spinoza's asked. Of, co- uh, let me back up. of course, the path of becoming free of one's emotions, so one is no longer in bondage of it. So that means somebody insults me and I don't feel anger anymore. Right. Um, that process <clears throat> is the beginning of a spiritual journey <clears throat> and culminates in what he calls the experience of knowing the um, union that in fact already exists between our mind and the mind of God. It's like, very profound. It would be like a cell in your body. Mm-hmm. I get this analogy somewhere else. Let's suppose that the cells are consciousness, science fiction stuff. But let's suppose in some cells, their consciousness is truncated only on the surface of the cell. It, it does not know it's inside. It does not know that the DNA within it is the knowledge of the body. Right? The DNA contains the knowledge of the body. And that by accessing its DNA, right, it can come to know itself and know the union that already exists between itself and the body as a whole. But if it's identified with just the, the outer surface of it, mm-hmm. that outer sur- it's, it's got to live in constant fear because that outer surface is constantly and continuously being bent out of shape by interactions with other cells and nutrients and, and stuff that flows through, uh, flows through the body. So that's the human condition, right? We are living Spinoza would say, in the imaginative part of our consciousness, the part that thinks in terms of images, uh, sense perception, he would call the emotion um, uh, part of it, memories. Of, and we identify we identify with our body's history. Which, which he regards as the superficial aspects of our yeah, being. Yeah. Our true happiness, you have to go deeper than mm-hmm. that. The cell that is constantly fearful of being bent out of shape, <laughs> which is happening to it all the time, right? You say, well, how do I deal with my fear? you got to go within. you got to go and find the DNA at the center of your being, which connects you not only with every other cell in this body, mm-hmm. right, the interconnectedness of all things, but also with the body as a whole. 
because you have within the DNA the directions for making the body. Mm-hmm. Of course, DNA was not a concept that no. Spinoza it, would have had. No. So how did he put it? There's a letter of Spinoza uh, called, I, I, I look at you can you can Google it, The Worm in the Blood. So he says, imagine a tiny worm living in the blood. Uh, and imagine that it's conscious of its surroundings and trying to figure it all out, right? Its immediate experience is just as interactions with things in, in its immediate environment. Another cell here, he calls it the blood and the limp. He didn't know the details. Uh, he didn't know how good that example uh, was. Uh, but that that um, worm would form a mental image, assuming it was intelligent and articulate, based on its immediate experience. It would not have a concept of what's going on in remote parts of the body, uh, parts of the body remote from it, nor would it have any understanding of the body as a whole. So um, that's sort of what, what, what he used uh, for that. And say so that's how we are, that we humans living in our part of the universe come up with these, you know, ideas and, and, and systems that, that are just mm-hmm. the result of our immediate interaction with things right. in our immediate environment. And that's we're in bondage. That's, we are in bondage to that. At the very end, he says, if the way that I have shown is difficult, it can nevertheless be found. Now, the scholars interpret that as just understanding something intellectually which is difficult enough because <laughs> the system is complex mm-hmm. and I've not done, done it justice at all. But that's not what Smoza is talking about. Smoza is talking about applying that understanding to your emotional reality. And he comes up with what he calls the dictates of reason. That it is reason. That is when you figure out things from first principles, reason will tell you that hatred cannot be destroyed by hatred but only by love. And he goes into the details. This is, this is, uh, he demonstrates this in his geometrical uh, method. And it's an amazing thing. And he talks about the man of reason lives in such, such and such a way, and it's the way an enlightened uh, uh, per- person would live, with malice uh, towards no one, uh, um, and, and loving kindness, a steady flow of loving kindness coming within him, radiating outwards to all things that come and I gather from historical accounts that it's generally agreed that this is how he, in fact, lived his pretty, life. Pretty much. That he was an exemplar of his own philosophy. He, he, I, I, I believe that that's true. Um, there are stories that um, he, he was not this isolated uh, uh, guy that he sometimes portrayed as being, but he had a rich correspondence. Um and some of the leading intellects of Europe at the time would would uh, would visit him and and and, mm-hmm. and seek him out. He supported himself as a lens grinder, not as a theologian yeah. or a great rabbi or a professor. And, and that's how he died too. Mm-hmm. He he was forty four, forty five when he died. He had a room in an attic um, with probably no ventilation and grinding, and he was breathing in all those lens dust. And I and I think I read somewhere that he had a genetic disposition mm-hmm. from his family for lung. Mm. Lung disease. <laughs> well, what I gather is the most important insight that has come out of Spinoza is the notion of aligning oneself with the will of the divine by accepting uh, everything. Well, okay, uh, yes. 
But the will of the divine is not separate from our own will. Um, when we align ourselves with it, we realize that it was our will all along. Just like a cell within a body should align its will with that of the body as a whole. Mm-hmm. Because in that lies its greatest happiness mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, whatever. Um, well, that's a little, I, I know there's a paradox in there. Like, um, let's suppose something's going on and I don't like it. So you could say, well, I'm not in alignment with what is, but my dislike is also part of what is. And I'm in alignment with that. So in other words, one has to be uh, aligned with both that which we don't like, if we wish to see society changed, and with our desire for change at the same time. Yes. And of course, an awareness of our inner life is absolutely important. Mm -hmm. If we have emotions that are disturbing to us, we, we must know what they are mm-hmm. um, and be able to, to detach. Yeah. So, um, for the therapist out there, one of his remedies, he has three or four th- very specific remedies, mm-hmm. but the one that stuck with me is to separate your emotion from thoughts about external cause. So, um, external events do not cause our emotions so much as trigger them. And I, I believe this is accepted by mainstream therapists mm-hmm. now. And, um, but when we are suffering from an emotion, so let's say you're angry at somebody or depressed or whatever, we usually associate it with, with what we think caused it. Yeah. Um, you said this, and that made me feel this way. So we put all of our mental energy on what we believe to be the cause of the emotion, which is really just a trigger. And when you separate the two, of course, you can do you do it with your mind. The thing is to forget about your thoughts of external cause and put your awareness on the feeling of the emotion itself that is on the sensation in in your body, which is why I think... uh, in my educational system, in my latest book, is when um, uh, a, a child is experiencing emotional distress, the parent or teacher should not say, why are you unhappy? Or why are you angry? But rather, where in your body are you having this feeling? Right? Um, in, in my own thinking, so much of what I'm reading and thinking it comes together and so uh, I want to shift so in the Course in Miracles mm-hmm. which I've told you I'm very much yes, into you're, you, that's an, a big influence in your life it these is, days. it's lately uh, mm-hmm. it, it is that one of the things that so we are never upset for the reason we think because the reason we think will always be something outside of ourselves mm-hmm. so that could have come right out of Spinoza it, it, it could have been yeah yeah mm-hmm. um uh we are always mistaken when we try to attribute the cause of a given. So he talks about what we believe is the cause rather than what is the cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also says whether a person, oh, I can't believe I, I, I memorize this, whether a person exalts or repents of any deed depends entirely on upbringing. On upbringing. On upbringing. And when I read this, I said, no, that can't be right. And this was maybe 
30 years ago, or something like that, was when I was studying uh, Spinoza, there was on the news uh, in some rural parts of Pakistan, I think, where a man and his son uh, were in jail for murdering the daughter-sister. The daughter-sister had glanced, in their opinion, at, at some male, at some other male, without their permission or, or whatever. And to save the purity of the family or whatever, they killed her. Yeah. And they asked... Honor killing. An so honor killing. Yeah, yeah honor yeah. killing. I should have just said, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be, it can be anywhere. Yeah. The honor, honor killing. And they asked them, well, how do you feel? And they, I forget, one of them said, um, uh, both good and bad at the same time. I feel very bad that she brought dishonor to the family by flirting with whoever, but I feel good that we have preserved our honor by killing her. Now, if those people had been raised, uh, <laughs> I don't know, in a different culture, <laughs> right, or or a less uh, a fundamentalist culture, and they killed a family member, they'd be repenting for it. But instead, these people were exulting in having murdered a daughter-sister. And that brought home Spinoza's point, that whether we exult or repent of any past deed depends upon our upbringing. Mm-hmm. So he's suggesting neither exalt nor repent? Uh, or do the upbringing differently. <laughs> um, the exercise that you provide in your book, and I think you have about over 20 exercises. I think about 28 or 29. Derived yeah. directly from Spinoza's writings. The one that really impressed me is the notion that if you divide the world into people you like and approve of and people you dislike, even hate and disapprove of, with, that most of us do. We, oh, yeah. we, we divide the world into Still do it. <laughs> good, good and evil or uh, that, you know, things that are positive, things that are negative. We live in a dualistic world. Mm-hmm. But then realize that all the people that you disapprove of and even hate, actually at a deeper level you love. Because yes, you are part of the divine, and the divine loves everything. Yes. Well, maybe yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, there's always no well it's on the one hand. <laughs> it's, it's not as if at a different level you yeah. don't feel animosity, even hatred. Right. I mean... We're taught to hate the devil, for example. We're taught to hate Hitler. We're taught to hate tyrants. But at a deeper level, we love everything. We embrace everything because of our divine nature. And, and you and I have both heard stories from near-death experiencers mm-hmm. um, where someone who played a, a role, um, a negative role in their life, in the near-death experience conditions, they realized that this was all planned. That that soul, that this deep love between the two souls that manifested as adversaries mm-hmm. in this life. So, uh, yeah, maybe that's, uh, if that's the bottom line here, so that when I quit the body, I'm going to discover that everyone who bothered me here and irritated me, starting from my, my parents to my colleagues, right, mm-hmm. were part of the same divine being as me. And we all agreed beforehand that we, like a play, we wrote yeah. the play together, we assigned the parts together, and here we are now 
acting it out. Now, would Spinoza have put it that way? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would have been familiar with theater, I imagine. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. who, who wasn't? Uh, but, um, but I put it that way, that, <laughs> okay. that we are like amnesiac, amnesiatic actors mm-hmm. who, while playing our role, mm-hmm. have forgotten that we are actors playing the role and think that we really are the role that we are playing. Mm-hmm. And you really, you derive that from the reports of uh, near-death experiences. Oh, oh yes. I, I will not deny that that studying the near-death experience has shaped and structured and helped my understandings of yeah. both Plato and uh, uh, Spinoza. And in fact, um, when I first read Moody's book in the 70s, Raymond Moody's, Raymond Moody's Life, Life After, After Life. Life, I'm reading it, and, and you know, I had the same academic, and this is hokey stuff, you know, you I was skeptical. I was suspicious and skeptical, <laughs> yeah. but what I couldn't when I started reading the reports that he was citing, because I had been influenced by Houston Smith mm-hmm. and taken courses on the Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita yeah. and even Western mysticism, yeah. I could see that they were the same kind of thing that mm-hmm. the near death experience was saying the same thing. This is early in your career the, when you were really a specialist in the philosophy of science. Uh, yeah. And especially the quantum theory. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of late seventies. Mm-hmm. And because I could see that the, um, that the near death experience reports, they were saying the same thing, different ways that the mystics have been saying in all traditions for mm-hmm. thousands of years. Yeah. So I was able to say, well, this is a kind, this is of this kind. Yeah. And I think that made it easier for me than many uh, psychologists and other philosophers who were not familiar with the mystical literature. Well, was Spinoza a mystic, would you say? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Look, he talks about his purpose in writing is to enable us to experience What's the word? Well, it talks about the knowledge of the union that exists between our mind and the mind of God. But by knowledge, he does not mean propositional knowledge, knowledge that that something is the case. That's the kind of knowledge that reason can uncover. But he means the direct experience. So, um, I like, um, I read an interview with, with some, uh, doctor some years ago, some cardiologist who was, I don't know if it was Bruce or Pim, who was studying the near-death experience, and um, was asked, well, do you believe it's real? And he responds, yeah, I believe it's real, but my patients who've had the experience know that it's real. Right. Now, he believes that it's real based on his investigations, on reason, talking to a lot of uh, NDEers, but the NDEers know that it's real based on direct and immediate experience. And Spinoza emphasized the knowing. The knowing. And that's, that's, well, he's a different system, but that's actually Plato's distinction between belief and knowledge in, in his, in his system. Mm-hmm. In Spinoza's system, the epistemology is a little different, but, but you can map one onto the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, Spinoza is not necessarily thought of as a Platonist. No, oh no. And in fact, his one or two comments on Plato are somewhat negative. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just w- w- wondering, he probably could not read Greek. 
he would read Latin, and could be the translations he had were not very good. Who would have translated it? It might have been uh, church folks, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so his image of, of Plato would not have been a very accurate uh, one. I think I don't really know. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and with Plato and Spinoza, if you get a sense that they're both talking about the same thing, but the concepts they use are so different that it frees you from identifying with the concepts. And you're able, or at least I was able to go just a little bit further than just consider, yeah. because here you can describe it this way, you can, you can describe it that way. So you're not just limited by just one description. You know, in, in your other book, Conversations with Socrates and Plato, you have a very interesting dialogue between Plato and Spinoza, in which, if I recall correctly, Spinoza has a tendency to want to describe abstract, non-physical reality in, in somehow using literal language, whereas Plato would use metaphorical language. I think that's generally true. I think Spinoza... <laughs> I'm sure they get along fine now, but w- would be a little uh, taken aback by Plato's slipping into myths and metaphors and, and, and analogies mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I think Spinoza believed that, well, yeah, you, you can't just lay it all out uh, 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 like this. But I think the fact that he's been so deeply misunderstood <laughs> for centuries, that maybe he wasn't quite, he's a little more optimistic yeah. about it. In, I, in I, other words, the idea that you can describe the deity, describe the divine, yeah, yeah. using, uh, using a words. rationalist approach to philosophy has its problems. It has its problems, but you can make a certain um, a certain progress. For, 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 for example, conceptually, everybody can understand the, the different kind of relationship that your cell has to your body uh, is different from the relationship that these flowers have to your body. Mm-hmm. Right? And we can say that Spinoza's concept of God is the former, that the individual created things are like cells in the body. Yeah. Oh, God, everybody can, can, can get that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that well, that's what he got excommunicated about. Probably some other things uh, uh, mm. too. But you can see how radical that idea is—not in Eastern thought, but but yeah. in Western thought. Very different than the allegory of the cave and yeah. Plato. Yeah. And then you know later when I started looking at uh, systems of his contemporaries or successors of Leibniz and Kant. Um, what I saw was very interesting that neither of them they were, just, they were geniuses, absolutely brilliant but they were attached, emotionally attached to the Judeo-Christian concept of a creator God who was remote from it other than his creation and if you especially in Leibniz's system it collapses into Spinozism if you give up his concept of a God that stands above his creation and, and, and imagines all the possible worlds that could be and then creates uh, the best. Your interest in Spinoza is really as a spiritual inspiration. Something like that. Um, when I was uh, studying the quantum theory, I wanted to know what those great minds that conceived the theory, what did they think about what it all 
what is it? What is it all about? What 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 is the, the meaning of life, basically? And um, of course, I found their writings very inspired because they were all open to a holistic uh, and even spiritual uh, world. The world founders world. of quantum physics, almost to a man, were uh, had a deep interest in mysticism. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there there are exceptions. This mm-hmm. is not. There are always exceptions to every rule, but on the whole, uh, yeah, and that I found very, very inspiring mm-hmm. uh, in my seeking, and so I identified more as a seeker than mm-hmm. and, and as a scholar, um, which I suppose made me the oddball of the department yeah. for forty years. Um, in, in some ways, I look at all the isms as maps, as guides for living. And Spinoza explicitly said that my purpose in writing is to take the reader by the hand, as it were, and lead him to the knowledge of his own divinity. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a spiritual teacher writing. Um, others at the time just wanted to lay out a system of beliefs, a system of concepts that they thought mm-hmm. could describe everything. They had no concept of experiencing the divine directly. Um, and they probably found that very troubling in, in, in Spinoza's system. I <clears throat> when I began studying Spinoza, I was also in therapy mm-hmm. myself, group therapy, and dating a therapist. Um, I was <laughs> told <laughs> by therapists and others that I was a typical intellectual male, dead from the neck down. Mm-hmm. Right. If somebody said, well, how do you feel about that, Neil? Or what are you feeling about that? I would say, give some thought or some judgment mm-hmm. rather than a feeling in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the males in the past who produced systems of philosophy were just like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> dead from the neck down. So they weren't operating from an emotional center. Mm-hmm. Where Spinoza, who I think had transcended all emotions, recognized the absolute importance of human emotions. And it's the emotions that need to be understood and transcended in order to come to an understanding of the divine and how things work. That when we have emotional attachments to some beliefs that were conditioned into us, like the Judeo-Christian concept of God, which most philosophers had those emotional attachments, um, they couldn't follow Spinoza's reasoning because their emotional attachments got, got in the way of, of their understanding. So the various exercises that he proposes are all designed to free us right. from that bondage. Right. Mm-hmm. Dr. Basically. Neil Grossman, this has been a very enlightening and inspiring conversation. Thank you. About, uh, about one of the great misunderstood philosophers of history. So I I am so gratified to learn about him. Thank you for being with me. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me here. It's been a delight. My pleasure. And thank you for being with us. 